Welcome to episode one of Rewired Podcast. Hope you guys liked episode zero. Uh, Kelly and I are back at it, and today we're talking about... Kelly, why don't you explain what we're going to talk about today? Today we're talking about McNulty, who is arguably the most central character in an ensemble cast. He's our lens in which, through which we kind of enter the world of Baltimore, especially in season one. Um, he invites us into the game, as it were. So today we're going to talk about, is he a tragic hero? And if he is, why is he? So a tragic hero, I guess, is kind of, uh, I'm thinking back to my grade 10 English class. And a tragic hero is basically a really central figure in all major literature, right? Yeah, it kind of stems out of the Greek tragedy tradition um, and David Simon in past interviews uh, for instance with Variety magazine has said that a lot of inspiration for The Wire and its structure comes out of um, that sort of Greek tradition so we're not totally just pulling this out of left field this is uh, a, a kind of a good a way to to look at McNulty and some of the other characters as well. Great and for those of us that don't have a master's in, in English literature can you kind of give it me like a, like, like what is a tragic hero? Like what's the rundown? What's the quality of a tragic hero? Well, a hero is, uh, as we know, someone who kind of saves the day. And the tragic hero tries to save the day, but mm. they can't always um, because they have flaws. And this is why we see them cropping up a lot in literature and in television shows and movies because they're relatable. Because humans have flaws too. It's uh, kind of a more realistic way for for the hero to be so classic tragic heroes who who would be a classic tragic hero um out of greek tragedies you can look at oedipus from oedipus rex uh shakespeare has lots but hamlet is a big one um and then more contemporary jay gatsby is a tragic hero um and then from some of the more recent television uh tony soprano Jack Shepard from Lost, those are tragic heroes as well. Interesting. So like, yeah, I guess the, the, they're, they're flawed. Like, I think Jay Gatsby, um, Tony Soprano, Nick Nolte, looking at all of their qualities, we shouldn't actually even like them, right? Like, I mean, McNulty's a womanizer. He's mm -hmm. an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. But at the core, he does want to save the day. And so that's, I guess that's what makes him likable. Yeah, we, you're right. We, there are a lot of tragic heroes that we shouldn't necessarily like um, because they make so many mistakes and that's kind of the, the crux of, of uh, their existence. But there's something that draws the audience to the tragic hero. And McNulty's definitely not the only tragic hero in The Wire. No, um, some of the think pieces online, there's arguments for uh, Lester Freeman being a tragic hero, Ziggy Sabotka, Frank Sabotka, um, lots of characters in The Wire uh, could be considered tragic heroes. All those Sabotkas. All of them, yeah. I well, know. and it's, I don't think any coincidence that that season is about the Greeks and oh. there's so much Greek tragedy at work. That's true, it's like, it is a moder modern day Greek tragedy. So recognizing that there's kind of a formula to the tragic hero, um, who, who came up with this concept of the formula of the tragic hero? So the kind of good place to start is uh, the Aristotelian definition of the tragic hero, Aristotle, as we 
No is a classic Greek philosopher. So he came up with six terms or characteristics that are sort of defining qualities for the tragic hero. And so I think it's useful to look at those six and uh, as they relate to McNulty. So that's what we're going to do today. Okay, great. So what's, uh, what's quality one? Okay, so quality one is hamartia, which is kind of the fatal flaw that leads to the downfall of the tragic hero. Interesting. So McNulty has lots of flaws. He has lots of flaws. As I said, he's a, he's a womanizer. Mm-hmm. He looks to women to save him, uh, I yeah. think, a lot. Ronnie, for sure. For sure, Ronnie. And, you know, he's always talking about, like, he's going he's gonna to get good again when, if he gets back with Elena. Mm-hmm. Um, when he does get with Beatty in season four, he is a, a changed man. Yep. Um, but he can't stick. And that's kind of related to the the drinking, which is another really big fatal flaw of McNulty's. Um, It affects his ability to hang on to any of the good stuff in his life. Yeah, definitely. Like, well, so when he does finally get with a good woman, he can't can't make it stick because he's got that, that love of Jameson. Yeah, and also the love of the game of major crimes. He, yeah, um, I feel, you know, we kind of see time and time again that when McNulty starts a major case, he gets into a bit of a downward spiral with, with the drinking and then kind of also with the philandering. Right. So maybe looking at knowing that this is the quality that's going to lead the character to their fatal flaw, right? Is that, did I catch that right? Um, the fatal flaw leads them to their downfall. Okay, sorry, yeah. So the fatal flaw, flaw leads them to their downfall. I think probably McNulty's love of the game is, is that fatal flaw. Yeah, I like think that can't... underpins the others. His love for the game and his um, insistence on being part of major crimes means that he can't walk away from alcohol, can't stay with or you know, keep hold of a, a good woman. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's think about his love for the game. I mean, we see it definitely in season one because he, he has it out for the Barksdale yeah. clan. Like, that is like his one mission in life is to take down Barksdale. And one of the, you know, very earliest scenes of the whole series, he's in the court observing a murder case that he's not even on the file. He just wants to see what's going to happen. And yeah. I think it, it's either the the judge or um, maybe Landsman who says like, well, what do you care about this case? But he cares, even though he's not involved. Yeah. Yeah. The judge asks him why he cares. And the judge says, um, when you start coming with the clients, it's time to get out of the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, to which McNulty says, you shouldn't talk dirty now that you're a judge. But the other um, uh, big piece of quote that makes me think of that is when uh, he Bunk says to him, there you go, giving a fuck when it ain't your turn to give a fuck. Yeah, a repeated line throughout the series, which um, I think always leads back to McNulty's love for the game. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then when, you know, he kind of, even when he starts to close the, the Barksdale case, it still feels really unresolved to him. But then he gets into season two and he, again, he, he's been punished. He's been put on the boat. And then what does he do? He, he still wants, well, he, I mean, he mostly wants to fuck over his bosses. Yeah, but he infiltrates that case that he's not a part of. Um, because it's a good case. He gets yeah, it. and I think it's the medical examiner might have says, you know, well, why do you care if she gets identified? Mm-hmm. He says, well, 
have you seen what they do to unidentified bodies in the morgue or something like right. that? Um, yeah, he just can't stop himself from wanting to solve cases. Exactly. And I think that that's one of those things that when he says that, we think to ourselves, oh, I, I can like him, even though, you know, he's got all these bad qualities or flaws or whatever, like, you know, his heart is always in the right place. Yeah. So what's the second step? Uh, the second one is hubris, and a lot of people would probably be more familiar with this term. It's a little bit more commonly used, but hubris is excessive pride um, and a disrespect for the natural order of things. Um, and McNulty clearly exhibits a lot of hubris. Yeah, I think that that kind of describes McNulty to a T. Yeah, I mean, disrespect for the natural order is his whole mode of being, as we see in season one, when he breaks the chain of the command that's the first thing we learn about McNulty is that he, you know, he goes above the lieutenant's head. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we see that right away with him. It's interesting because that's always for a case too. Like, um, again, in season two, he definitely breaks chain of command when he sends the map over to the Coast Guard or whatever it is yeah. to say, like, this is your, this is the Baltimore City police case. But even in later seasons, I'm thinking in season five, um, he has such disrespect for for the the chain of command that even you know he screws over Daniels who arguably I mean they have a, a tense relationship throughout the entire series but yeah. I, I think by the end of season four you could almost say that Daniels is a friend yeah they had a, a mutual respect even if it was a little bit filled with friction yeah and and McNulty literally burns it to the ground by inventing a serial killer. Yeah, and that's part of his pride is that he thinks he's the smarter than the rest of the entire police force. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when he sees that not enough is being done um, in season five about solving the murders, then he decides to just make up a serial killer, um, which is just completely um, disrespectful of, of the way things go in the police. Yeah, and I mean, time and time again, we just see his his hubris, and, and there's kind of a, we're going to talk more about mirrored lines in another episode, but there is this recurring theme where people who are close to McNulty tell him he's bad for people, mm -hmm. and and I think that most of what that is, is it, it, it relates back to his hubris. Interestingly, though, a lot of his hubris is then what brings him to these cases, right? Like, his pride is what brings him to the Barksdale thing that's what brings him to the um the case on the docks mm -hmm. you know yeah um and even just some of the lines in the first episode uh after he goes to the judge and talks about how Avon's crew has been um you know dropping bodies and everything when he has the conversation with Rawls in the office it's such a great scene and uh, Rawls is like, well, I've got the the judge asking about 10 and then mm -hmm. something. And then McNulty, almost snarky, is like, well, he did 10. We only charged them for two or yeah. whatever those figures are. Um, yeah, he, he thinks he's smarter. Definitely in that, um, for anyone that's read Homicide, um, there, is a, there is definitely a, a detective in David Simon's Homicide, which is a true crime book, that does have a lot of these excessive pride qualities and a lot of his colleagues do kind of think he's a dick because he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Mm -hmm. um, back to that scene with McNulty and Rawls in that first episode, that is an incredibly cinematic 
you know, there's the reflection in the window, mm-hmm. the rolls, and beautiful the it's, cinematography. It's really amazing. Um, sorry, did I interrupt? No, your thought? go ahead. There's another great scene. I mean. McNulty has so much disrespect for everyone in the police force, even people that are veterans of it. And I'm thinking specifically of Lester Freeman, um, who's been in the force for so much longer. And there's a moment where McNulty starts beefing with him. I think it's season Mm -hmm. two. And then Freeman kind of comes back and says, you're not worth the skin off my knuckles, Junior. Yeah. Um, And I think that's like a great moment of someone being like, no, McNulty, like, take your place. You're... Yeah. You're not as great as you think you are. You haven't been here long enough. And of all the characters to have respect for, I mean, Freeman is this epic detective. His experience is so close to what McNulty's was. So, I mean, if McNulty was interested in learning from his elders and the wisdom of cops who'd already been through this system, Mm -hmm. like, you know, he should really... It should should be Freeman, yeah. I also think about um, when... uh, Elena finds out that McNulty's brought the boys and had them front and follow Stringer Bell in the in the farmers market scene, um, and so she like calls him into court for some sort of custody order, and he asks Ronnie to go with him and be his lawyer, and that's kind of where it was all revealed that he was cheating with Rhonda yeah. when it like. And again, like it's just, uh, and I think actually there's a lot of really critical scenes where he has this relationship with Rhonda, but he just screws her over whenever he can. Like, when he um, he tries to back um, the, you know, uh, is it Levi, the the lawyer for the for the Barksdale claim? Levy. Yeah, he, so he tries to back Levy into a corner, but he's got Rhonda in the room, and when they're leaving, when they're leaving that scene, like, he just, he, like, tears a strip off Levy and says they're going to court order his records of money or whatever, and... You know, she says, you'll just use anybody, won't you? Mm-hmm. And it's it's like, you know, throughout the whole se- the whole series, I mean, yeah. there is this, like, he will just use anyone mm-hmm. to, to get with his pride. Yeah. So that brings us to the next stage of being a tragic hero. Yep, which is anagnorisis, uh, which is a critical moment of recognition or discovery. Interesting. Um, and as a police, I think McNulty does have a few of these as he's solving cases year after year. But there's one in particular, uh, which I think is a really big turning point for McNulty. It's in season three when he catches Stringer Bell on the business line on the phone. And that's when he realizes, like, he's got him. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, like, a really, it's, you know, what he's been chasing for two and a half seasons up to that point. Absolutely. And it's interesting when that happens because I think as the audience we wonder, well, how is this show going to go on? Like Mm -hmm. if he gets Stringer, is that the show? Because even when he was working other cases, he had this like this thing about the Barksdale Bell crew. Yeah. um, It's almost like McNulty cared more about getting Stringer Bell than he did about Avon because he got Mm -hmm. Avon in season one. Um, but that wasn't enough, and I think that goes back to the pride. Um, yeah. But I think McNulty recognized that Stringer Bell was kind of the brains of the operation, and that was his, you know, exactly. his end point, is he wanted to get Stringer. I think that's exactly... I, I was just going to say that. Like, I think, I think that when he, when he... Well, and it comes down to a conversation in season three that um, Bell and Barksdale have, where... Um, Bar- or Bell, Stringer Bell says to Avon, like, what do you want to be? Like, he basically asks him, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what do you, like, who are you? Because Stringer wants to be this businessman. 
And Avon says, just a gangster, I suppose. So I think that when you look back at McNulty's pride or hubris, like just a gangster, that's not the game enough. Like it has to be Belle. Yeah, um, there might be a little bit of kind of um, mirroring going on between Stringer and McNulty even. Um, And I know we're going to talk about mirroring in another episode, but kind of Stringer thinking he's smarter than the game he's playing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he's always encouraging his organization to, you know, think about it as a business. Let's get better product. Let's work with our adversaries. Um, which is definitely, I think, disrespect for the natural order of the drug trade. That's true. And he's often trying to sort of, uh, I don't know how to say the word, usurp? Usurp? Usurp. Usurp Barksdale. You know, he's often going behind his back. I mean, he has D'Angelo killed. Yeah. And Avon doesn't even know until that final sort of culmination scene. Um, the one on the balcony? Is that what you're... Well, that, that there's, scene? there's, that's kind of like, I guess, is it the denouement where it comes down? Yeah. Um, I think that the, the actual like pivotal scene is where they get into kind of like a fist fight in the, in the office. Oh yeah. And, um, basically Avon says to Stringer, you're not hard. And then Stringer says, how do you think D'Angelo died? He didn't kill himself. Um, so so anyway, well, now we're getting off track. We're talking about Stringer Bell. But right. I, think, I think you're right. Like, I think Stringer Bell and McNulty do mirror each other in a lot of ways. And I think they, they do both certainly display a disrespect for the order because of their pride. And they do both think they're the smartest guys. Yeah, and I mean, up until that point in the whole series, they've been playing this game of cat and mouse. So when McNulty hears him on the phone and thinks, I've got him, I think that is a major critical moment of discovery but it leads in exactly to the uh, the next quality that we're going to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So Anagnorisus kind of generally will precede uh, the next quality, which is peripatia, um, which is a kind of sudden turn of events or unexpected reversal. Um, so we just talked about how McNulty discovers Stringer Bell on the phone and thinks, I've got him, and then it's kind of this crushing blow to McNulty when he discovers that Stringer Bell's been killed uh, by Omar. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I had him. And he doesn't even know it. Yeah. And that's like so, such a low, low for McNulty. And what's really interesting is that, you know, McNulty's fatal flaw is his love of the game. Mm-hmm. And ultimately... The game is not the cops catching Bell. The no. game is Omar killing Bell as, you know, as part of this thing with Brother Muzon or whatever. So it's, it's, it's I, well, probably not the true use of ironic, but it's ironic in a way that, um, you know, McNulty's love of the game, the game is what actually ultimately ruins his, you know, final moment of triumph with Stringer Bell. Yeah, and I mean, going back to his pride... I mean, you would think as a police, he wants Stringer off the street to keep the streets safer, but he Mm -hmm. doesn't care about that. He's devastated that he didn't get to catch him, which was like something that would be kind of an ego stroke for McNulty. He just wanted to put him in handcuffs and and put him away. Uh, It wasn't about having Stringer Bell out of operation. Exactly. Well, and it's so so interesting because he's like, when he's sitting, there's that another great cinematic cinematic moment where he's sitting 
he's backlit by those windows in this sort of what is going to become a condo building. And Stringer's dead body is there on the floor. And McNulty's sitting on the windowsill and he's, he's crushed. He's devastated. And, you know, he's, he keeps saying, I had him. I mm-hmm. had him. Yeah. And you're right. It's not about the safety of Baltimore. Well, and you talk about what Kima says in following mm-hmm. yeah, the death of Barksdale. Right. Because or, I, sorry, Stringer Bell. Yeah. Somebody says um, to Kima, how did McNulty take it when they find out about Stringer Bell being dead? And she says, like he was kin. Like he's literally that upset mm-hmm. about Stringer Bell. Well, and I think we as the audience are kind of wondering, well, what now? I mean, mm-hmm. where is the show going from here? Because yeah. who is, who's the object? Who's being chased now? Exactly. Um, so, it, yeah, that's a critical moment. It is a critical moment. And I think uh, certainly we as the audience are wondering, okay, well, where is the show going to go now? Because in a way, we're seeing it through the eyes of McNulty, and he's asking himself, well, where is my life going to go now? Yeah, like, what is he going to do next? Exactly, and, and I think so, it, and it's interesting, I mean, that obviously then leads into the ability for Marlowe's crew to come up, and I mean, they could never do that if Bell and Stringer were, or sorry, Bell and Barksdale were both in in the game still, but now they're they're basically both gone. And I mean, it's so interesting how... Avon is presented as the kingpin, but he takes a like a further and further backseat role as as the series goes. And every time he's incarcerated, it's just like another loss of power for him. Like mm-hmm. he just, you know, yeah, he's basically a non-entity by the end of the series. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So now looking at kind of the last two characteristics, these are terms that are used a little bit more frequently in common parlance, but. The next one is nemesis, um, often used to describe an enemy, but in the Aristotelian sense, it's an inescapable downfall. Hmm. Um, so, or kind of a, a coming to an inescapable fate. I shouldn't say that it's just necessarily a downfall, but because um, I think if I was if I had just heard the word and not the definition, I would have said, oh well, I guess. Avon Barksdale is McNulty's nemesis, but that's not, that's kind of the common way of expressing Yeah, that's nemesis. a little bit more common, and I think what McNulty's actual nemesis is, is working major crimes. That <laughs> is the inescapable fate. So it's interesting, we were just talking about this turning point that happens when Stringer Bell is killed, and for a while it, it almost seems like McNulty's going to escape that fate. He... He is so changed by the the killing of Stringer Bell and, and the fact that he's not the one that made this happen, mm-hmm. um, that he, he goes back to being a beat cop. So he totally, I mean, season four is a different McNulty than we've ever known. It's a very different McNulty. He's working the beat. He's also in a what seems to be a really great, stable relationship with Beatty. Mm-hmm. He's not really drinking. Um, we don't even really see him all that much in season four. That's right. I mean, Bunk goes over there and tries to tempt him to go out for a drink, and McNulty sips on a beer, and, you know, it, it, it's kind of like we wonder if this is going to be the redemption of McNulty. Like, is he... Is he I think even Elena says to him in that one episode where they all go to the restaurant and she meets him there to pick up the boys... And she says, if I'd known you were going to grow up to be a grown-up, you know, and, and so yeah. I think that turning point with Stringer Bell is, is so critical, but then, then Bodhi killed. gets killed. And that is another critical t- turning point. And again, Bodhi is this character that I, I 
I'm always shocked that I was sad when Bodhi's killed and I'm like, I mean, yeah, he, he was a truly unlikable character at first. At first, but, um, and we'll talk about Bodhi again uh, in another episode. But in season four, McNulty is kind of forging this relationship with Bodhi, getting a little closer to him. Um, they almost seem to have a, a rapport between the two of them. And then when McNulty finds out that Bodhi's been killed, he goes back to working major crimes. And I think the line that he says is, I felt like I owed it to the kid. Right. So... I mean, in, in my mind, at least, the, the working major crimes, the being the murder cop, that's, that's um, McNulty's ultimate fate. Right. And it goes back to his, um, sorry, the background clicking is my dog walking around. Um, yeah, it goes back to, to that ultimate, you know, that is he can't stay away from the game. And he, I think, almost in a way in season four, is looking for an excuse to go back to the game. Mm-hmm. But he, he doesn't have it. He has that good woman that he thinks he thinks women f- fix him. So, yeah. you know, he's got BD. He's got this sort of new family with her. Um, and, and then all of a sudden, yeah, Bodhi, he, he's all, he can get right back into the game. Yeah, and he goes back to major crimes and then loses BD and starts drinking again and then ends up crafting this elaborate lie about a serial killer. So... You know, by season five, he's kind of right back where he was in the beginning. And it's um, interesting because a lot, most of the other characters have very much evolved how they were in the beginning. Yeah. Like, um, when if you look at Kima, for an example, like she, she's now with a totally new person. Well, she's kind of like she's a bit of a womanizer herself, mm-hmm. but um, you know, she does the right thing. She goes back to give her ex partner money for their child. And, you know, she's, yeah. so she's growing up. Well, and if we, is... well, if we want to talk about real evolution of character, I don't think there's a better example than Presbo. Right. As a, as a, as a teacher. Starting out as a super immature, um, you know, screw up in the police unit that is just the pet of his father-in-law. And then by season four, you know, he's this great teacher and, uh, so and and actually, then in season five, he he is still a great teacher. But when Dookie comes back and is trying to like continue a relationship, extort him basically for money. Well, yeah, extort him for money. But even before that, when he's still like you know he gives them he gives Presbo the pen and he you know yeah. he's trying to keep a relationship going. But Presbo does the professional thing and and you know keeps him at arm's distance. So. Yeah. That's definitely an evolution of character. Lester makes an interesting evolution, too, because, I mean, Lester eventually becomes McNulty's partner in Mm -hmm. this fraudulent serial killer. Um, But he's always... I think he also has a real disdain for the chain of command himself, but just has better sense than McNulty. Um, Which kind of leads us into our last point here of the Aristotelian characteristics, and the last one being catharsis, which also kind of bastardized in uh, common parlance, but catharsis in the literary sense are the feelings of sadness or pity or fear that we feel when the tragic hero meets their downfall and whatever it may be. Yeah, and it's interesting to me, and uh, it would be interesting to talk to David Simon about this, but by season five, I, like, I, I do care about McNulty, but I hated season five so much Mm -hmm. and like McNulty is just so like the whole thing is just so out there to me that I 
Like, yeah, a lot I of people had trouble with season start five. start to dislike McNulty. Although in season four, and at the beginning of season five, I do like him, and I was sad to see that he'd gone back to his old ways at the beginning of season five. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't like season five either. And we are going to have an episode down the road, um, which is just going to be what was up with season five. Yeah. Um, but I think what we feel at the end for McNulty is just that he can't help himself. Yeah, he can't. He cannot help... He. His love of the game, his excessive pride, he just, it's just another way to screw the bosses over. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to for him. Mm -hmm. Policing, he's not about the safety of the community. He's not about doing the right thing. It's about people recognizing him and honoring him as the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. And it's not even about having a career. Like, he's not a career man. No. And actually, thinking about that point, is there any point in the show where somebody does recognize his, in his own mind, his brilliance? Um, that's a good question. Like, I can't really think of a time. If there is, it might be Beatty in season two, because she's kind of coming in fresh, mm-hmm. and I think she sees some of McNulty's work with, you know, the tides and with um, deciphering the letter from, I think it's maybe Polish or Ukrainian, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Um, I think maybe she recognizes that he does have some brilliant moments and maybe that's what leads to their relationship down the road. Um, but I think everybody else is just alienated and annoyed by McNulty. Mm-hmm. And even when he has these ideas, like, I mean... With the serial killing, even Lester improves upon that because he, he basically tells McNulty he's doing it all wrong and they come up with the, you know, the teeth and the bite marks and everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, again, Lester kind of becomes almost the brains behind that operation. Yeah. I think at the end, you know, we just, we feel sorry for McNulty and we're somewhat repulsed as much as we are attracted. Yeah. And it, I mean, repulsed is exactly the right word. It, is, that a, is that a characteristic of a common tragic hero? Like, is that something we see in other examples of tragic heroes? Um, Maybe, like... Well, you know, going back to the Jay Gatsby example that we mentioned, you know, I think the repulsion element is that he had fabricated this completely fake life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Don Draper, another modern example. Um, we don't like that quality in somebody that yeah. they're you know giving us falsehoods but when they create this compelling persona then it's hard to not like that part right and I think I think for for a lot of it we're rooting for McNulty like you know we're 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 cheered in mm-hmm. season four when he's made this turnaround and he seems to be happy being a beat cop and you know he does he does seem to be a cop who wants to do the right thing. and Yeah, well, in season two, you know, I feel sorry for him that he's not on the, the docs case. I want to see him work that case. I'm, you know, when he's kind of hanging around the office, almost like waiting to be invited to the lunch table, you know, you feel sorry for him. Yeah. Um, so there are things we like about McNulty and, and things that There's we don't. There's definitely and moments of disappointment. Remember when, remember when he and Elena sleep together again? And he thinks they're getting back together, and he's sitting down at the breakfast table yeah. in the morning, and she comes down and says, I need you to leave. But yeah, he's and like, he says, what, what do we, we do, do with the day? Yeah. Yeah. That's one of, like, the saddest moments for McNulty um, for me. Yeah. Um, and, well, and just going back to season five, uh, the rest of the 
crew staging the wake for McNulty, I think, is a, a major moment. It's his mm-hmm. symbolic death. He's not part of the police. He may as well have died, and he doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, so this is, this, is the, this is the tragic hero of McNulty. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is kind of this, the way we're going to run this podcast. We're going to just you know, talk about interesting parts of The Wire and do some, some real literary analysis. So we hope you enjoyed this discussion. Um, next time we're talking about uncrossable thresholds and the specter of the county. Exactly. It's going to be a good episode. It's going to be amazing. Um, we'll definitely post some show notes that link you to the articles we referenced today. Um, we want to hear from you. So what are those moments for McNulty that really solidify his status as a tragic hero to you? Mm-hmm. When do you feel for him? When do you hate him? Uh, and what do you think his fatal flaw is, especially? Yeah. And tell us who are your other tragic heroes. In yeah. The, who else is a tragic hero? In, um, the, in the series. So tweet us. We are at Rewired Podcast. Or you can email us, podcast.rewired at gmail.com. And uh, this episode has been produced, hosted, and written by Bailey Reed and Kelly Reed. And the music is by Flo Florek, uh, which you can find on SoundCloud. It's a remix of Tom Waits' Way Down in the Hole. Okay, see you next time.